Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. You know, one of the craziest things I reckon in all of society that we do is allow people to take newborn babies home from the hospital. Like seriously, when you go to the hospital pregnant, you have no experience, no resume, no ability to look after a human being whatsoever, and then they just let you leave with it at the other end of it. You know, like I know that this is your growth strategy down here at Ormo, that you're just letting people give birth everywhere, and so you'll be with me on this, right? You'll be with me on this. You go to the hospital with no experience, and I've done this twice, and, um, and I'm not very good at having babies. I was quite sick. I stayed in hospital for a long time. And they give you this in- entire ward full of experienced midwives and nurses that are just the press of a button away. And then they come into your room at nighttime and they wrap the baby up in this nice little warm thing called a swaddle, which to be honest, I never nailed. I, I did zips. That's a good piece of advice for anyone with babies. I just get the zipper ones. And then, uh, and then they, even the hospital that I went to even had these people called baby cuddlers who in the middle of the night would come into my room, see my baby screaming and say, I'll take the baby for an hour so that you can have some rest. Then they come into your room one day, they sit you down and they say, okay, you're ready to go home. What? Like, are you guys coming with me? You know, like, how are you supposed to go home and look after this human being that you've created with no experience, no license, nothing? You just get to go and you carefully take the baby down to the car that your husband has poorly put a car seat into a couple of days beforehand. You strap that baby in like there's no tomorrow and then drive 20 k's home. Uh, Sorry, you drive 20 k's under the speed limit home, being very careful over every bump and crack in the road because now you are responsible for this person that you have brought into the world. It's insane that we let this happen. I mean, if you go for a job, you have to prove that you have the experience to do that job. If you want to drive a car, you've got to get do a test to get a license, but a baby, wham, you're out of the hospital, no worries. It's crazy. And I've got to tell you, as someone uh, who's had two babies, and I'm sure you'll be with me in this, my prayer life, it hoiked up <laughs> when I took a baby home from the hospital. You know, for me, I, I was a pastor when I had my kids and I was studying theology. I was a professional Christian. You know, I got paid to read the Bible and try and understand it. And one of the problems with doing that and, and that being your life is that God just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more incomprehensible. And for me, in that studying and that understanding, that growing of my knowledge about God, I lost sight of the personal nature of God. God just became so big and so universal and so sovereign that I lost sight of the personal nature of my heavenly Father until I was walking the halls of my house with a baby crying with no idea how to make it stop. You know, I was at a women's conference a little while ago and somebody asked me to give advice to new mums. I'm like the worst person to give advice to new mums, but one of my pieces of advice was learn verse two and three of Jesus loves me because you'll get sick of singing the first verse on repeat. Uh, Just over and over. I don't know what else to do. I guess Jesus loves me is my go-to. 
But when I was walking the halls of my house in the middle of the night, begging God to put this baby to sleep or tell me how to do it, I realized that God is a personal God. Because when that baby fell asleep and I finally got to go back to bed and get some sleep, I realized God had answered my prayers over and over and over and over again. And I realized that the big, sovereign God is actually a God that cares about me in the moment. A God that sees me frustrated, exhausted, overwhelmed with nothing but him to rely on. And I rediscovered the kindness of God. To be clear, that's not the only way to realize the kindness of God. You don't have to have kids to realize these things about God. But for me, that's my story. I I was reacquainted with the personal nature of God and the kindness of God. Because often we see God as this huge being that, that, that is over, has authority over the whole world and has billions of prayers like rushing at him in every second. And my prayer in the hallway of my house with a tiny little baby screaming seems so insignificant. But God cares. God sees me. God knows me. He knows what I need. He knows what I want. And the kindness that he showed me in those moments was overwhelming. And as a Christian, as someone who follows Jesus, as someone who wants to be more Christ-like, I have to consider how I take that characteristic and embody it in my own life. How do I show the same kindness that God shows me to those around me? And as we dive into Ruth chapter three today, we're gonna see this incredible kindness of God displayed in this ancient story. So if you've got your Bibles, jump into Ruth chapter three with me. But before we get there, let me give you a bit of a catch up on uh, where we've been. I'm sure you've been to church every week and took extensive notes. And if you weren't, you probably listened to the podcast during the week, because that's just how you roll it all, right? But just in case it's your first Sunday, or you have missed a a week, let me just take you back to Ruth chapter one, where we meet the central characters of the story. Naomi, who uh, is an Israelite woman, is a woman of God who uh, marries um, an Israelite man and has two sons, and they're in Bethlehem, and in the middle of a famine. So everything is struggle, everything is difficult. And so they decide to move from Bethlehem to a place called Moab. And Moab is a dodgy place in the eyes of the people of God, in the eyes of the Israelites. Uh, They have a dodgy origin story, they have a dodgy God, they have a dodgy way of life. And there's a great deal of racial prejudice from the people of God uh, to the Moabites. But they decide there's a better option in Moab. And so they go to Moab, they set up life there. Naomi's two sons marry Moabite women. And they have a life there. They live their life there until tragedy strikes. And Naomi's husband and her two sons die. And there are three women who are left with nothing. They're in a foreign place. They have no husbands, they have no wealth, they have no land, they have no lineage, they have nothing. They are completely by themselves. They are mourning, they are grieving, they are destitute, they are desperate. And Naomi says to her two daughter-in-laws, just go back to your families, leave me and start again. And Ruth, 
the central character of our story, clings to Naomi and says, no, 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 you are my family. Where you go, I will go. Uh, Your God will become my God. Your people will become my people. And has this incredible display of loyalty and love. And so they go back to Bethlehem, and then when they arrive back to Bethlehem, everyone says, hey, it's Naomi. And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, which means sweetness. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has turned away from me. I went away full, and I've come back empty. God has turned away from me. Naomi has lost her, lost sight of the personal nature of God. She still believes in him. She still knows that he is there, but she could just see a big God and not a personal one, not a God who cares about her and her story. And so she says, call me bitter, because that's what I am. I'm a bitter, grieving, lonely widow. And that's chapter one. What a great start. Chapter two is this incredible story of provision, an incredible story of how God provides through his law and goes before us in all that we need and then goes above and beyond and actually gives us excess as well. And so there's this incredible uh, story of uh, Ruth and Naomi uh, who are widows. They have nothing. They are poverty stricken. They have no future. They have no present. Um, And they're provided for by the law um, of God that says to the harvesters, leave the corner of your fields for the foreigner and the widow. And Ruth is a foreigner, she's a Moabite, and she's a widow. And so she comes to the harvest fields to collect the gleanings, the leftover parts of the harvest. Enter Boaz, who is one of the harvesters. It's a real farmer wants a wife meeting. He sort of approaches, uh, he approaches Ruth, you know, in his uh, flannel shirt, probably unbuttoned with tanned, you know, rippling muscles coming out of it and a pitchfork. And that's, who we, that's how we meet Boaz. And Boaz approaches Ruth and hears her story, uh, understands who she is before he's actually even gotten to meet her. And it says that he was attracted to not her good looks, not her intelligence, not her achievements, but her integrity. He saw character in her. He saw integrity in her story. He was blown away by the loyalty and the kindness that she had shown to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then they have this connection, and it sort of seems like this guy is going to save them. Then we find out that Boaz is what's called the kinsman redeemer, or your Bible might call him the guardian redeemer, which is another law set out by God that says if your husband dies and there is no one else to carry on the line, that a male relative should marry you and redeem everything about you, redeem your future, redeem your land, redeem your possessions, redeem your property, redeem your lineage, redeem your position in society. No longer will you be a mourning, poverty-stricken foreigner, but you will become what is rightfully yours and have everything that you should have had if your husband hadn't died. He becomes this kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer. We find out Boaz could fill that role and it looks like everything is coming together for these guys. But then Boaz doesn't call. He doesn't text. He doesn't WhatsApp. He just goes silent. And so as we dive into Ruth chapter 3, 
Uh, we pick up the story and the ladies take it into their own hands. So finally, we're at Ruth chapter three. So let's read from verse one. Oh, one more thing about Ruth. It's a weird book, okay? It's an ancient, ancient story, okay? And uh, so when you read it, there's stuff in there that you just go, I don't understand that. And so today, we're going to uncover some of the mystery, okay? We're going to together look at some of the deeper meaning, the symbolism that I think makes the story make a little bit more sense and relevant. So we're going to hit some weirdness, and we're going to tackle it together. Is that okay? Great. Okay, so Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, oh, sorry, Ruth chapter 3, verse 1 says this. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you were there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. So what's going on here? What's happening in the story? And it's already getting weird, right? This is actually an incredible point in the story of, in particular, Naomi. So remember, Naomi has come back to Bethlehem mourning, mourning the loss of her husband and her sons, and also mourning the loss of the favor of God. She really believes that God has turned his back on her, and she's bitter, she's twisted, she's done, she's given up, she feels forgotten, betrayed, lost. But now, with the entrance of Boaz, she starts to see some hope. And she says to Ruth, take off those clothes that you're wearing and put on your best clothes. Now, it's reasonable to assume that as was the custom, these women would still be wearing their mourning clothes. They've come back to Bethlehem and they've lost their husbands. And so the custom would dictate that they would wear clothes of mourning, indicating that they are grieving widows. And in this moment, it's a special moment because Naomi says to Ruth, take off those clothes of mourning and put on your best clothes. It's like Naomi starts to see a glimmer of hope. She was mourning and now there's hope. She was bitter, but she's starting to sweeten. It's a really important part of the story. And it's a confusing request for Naomi, right? You know, she tells Ruth to change her clothes, get smelling good, go to the threshing floor. Now, the threshing floor was where the harvesters would take their crop at night. In the afternoon after they'd finished harvesting, it was usually a flat place sort of below the, below the fields. And they would take uh, their crop there and threshing or winnowing is uh, um, the art of separating the grain and the straw from your crop. So as best I can understand, they would throw their crop up into the air and get their pitchforks into it. I'm not a farmer, so I think this is what they do. Get their pitchforks into it and separate the grain and straw, or they would have like a sieve and sieve the crop until they had grain and straw, each of which had its own uses, right? 
So that was the art of threshing, and they would sleep on the threshing floor, the harvesters, to protect their crops so that they wouldn't be stolen overnight or, or taken advantage of in any way. And so the harvesters would sleep on the threshing floor. They would often celebrate during the harvest. It's a time of celebration. And so Naomi tells Ruth to go to the threshing floor, stay hidden while Boaz drinks and eats and gets merry. You know, he gets a big old roast meal and a couple of beers, and he's feeling full and happy and then it's watch which sleeping bag he gets into because you don't want to make that mistake. And then when he's asleep, go into his sleeping bag and uncover his feet. Which again seems a little bit weird. Now you can look at this story and, and think that there's some kind of sexual nature behind it. Right? It seems like what Naomi is telling Ruth to do is trap Boaz. It seems like she's telling Ruth to go to the threshing floor, slip into the sleeping bag of Boaz and sort of trap him. You know, like get sexy with him and trap him into marrying her. You can look at it that way and think, what, how, how does this fit in the story? And the truth is it doesn't. That idea does not fit in the story because the writer of Ruth has gone to great lengths great lengths to show us the integrity and the character that both Ruth and Boaz have. And so it doesn't make sense that this would be something that Ruth would do because we know her as a person of integrity, a person of character. We know Boaz as a person of integrity, somebody who is above reproach. And so I don't think that this is a sexual scene. And the uncovering of the feet seems confusing. And you know, as you read the scriptures, feet are actually a really important part of the story of God. But Ruth uncovering the feet of Boaz is not a sexual symbol. It would seem that it's symbolic of her humility as she uncovers the feet of Boaz and lies at his feet. It's her humility that is on display. It's her humbling herself before the man that could redeem her and saying, here I am. I'm available, not in a sexual way, but in a relational way. I'm yours. And we can't underestimate the, the courage that it takes, Ruth, to actually do this. And this doesn't directly link to my point very much at all, but I think it's important to honour those that have gone before us. And Ruth, the courage that it takes for her to sneak down to the threshing floor, hop into the sleeping bag with Boaz, not really knowing where his heart is at, what his response is going to be, whether someone might see her. The courage it takes for Ruth to do this is astonishing. And it just shows more and more of her loyalty to Naomi, her desire to see Naomi live a better life. And so the courage that's on display is remarkable. Let's keep going. Verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. It was probably the woman in his sleeping bag. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. 
I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Again, this seems a little bit strange. Why does she ask Boaz to put his garment over her? You know, presumably she's got something warm on. Is it it about gathering warmth? No, I don't think so. You see, it would seem that this idea of putting your garment over somebody is symbolic of becoming a part of their family. It's a little bit like in Scottish culture, how if you wear the tartan of your clan, then that shows that you belong to that clan, you belong to that tribe, you belong to that family. And it would seem that this is the same custom here as Boaz puts his garment or his blanket over Ruth. That's symbolic of him saying, you belong to my people. You belong to my family. You belong to my tribe. You belong to my clan. You belong to me. And then Boaz's response is astonishing. In verse 10, it says, the Lord bless you. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. Boaz's response is astonishing. A woman has just gotten into his sleeping bag in the middle of the night. You know, what we we would expect from a man like Boaz, a man of integrity, a man who's above reproach, is to out her, right? You know, both like get, like flick her out of his sleeping bag and say, what are you doing, woman? but also out her publicly. You know, everyone, check out what this girl just did. But that is not what he does. Based on what he knows about her character, about her story, about who she is, Boaz says, bless you. Bless you. And then he says, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. And he's referring to the kindness he saw in her gathering the gleanings for her mother-in-law. And I want to hone in on this, story, on this word, kindness, which is an English translation of a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is hesed. And to be honest, it's not a great translation, but it's not the translator's fault. It's actually our dismal English language's fault. Because in English, there is not one word that really encompasses all that the word hesed means. You know, if you look at the meaning of hesed in the Hebrew dictionary, it means the coming together of loyalty, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, mercy, love, and compassion. It's not just Boaz saying to Ruth, that was really kind of you. He's saying that's hesed, that's loyalty, that's faithfulness, that's kindness, goodness, mercy, it's love, it's compassion. There's so much more to what hesed means. And often we see this word hesed translated to the loving kindness, particularly when it's linked to God. When we talk about God's hesed, it's often translated to loving kindness. And importantly, and don't miss this, hesed is a verb. It's a doing word. It's an action word. Hesed is not something you, are, you just are. It's not something that God just is. Hesed is something you do. It's something that God moves in. It's a doing word. It's a verb. And Boaz sees that in Ruth. And when we think about this concept, this idea of hesed, it's reminiscent of a story that Jesus tells. In Luke chapter 10, It's a story we all know really well. 
In fact, even if you've never been to church before or you're coming back to church after a really long time, welcome back, by the way, it's called the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells this story of a man who's traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem. And he is traveling, and as he is traveling unexpectedly, he is knocked to the ground, beaten and robbed. Which is not unlike the journey that Ruth and Naomi have been on. Sure, they haven't been physically beaten or attacked or robbed, but they're broken women. They've lost everything. Naomi is bitter and twisted, feeling forgotten and betrayed by her God. It's not unlike this man who's been attacked on the road to Jerusalem. And it's not unlike the journey that many of us have experienced or are are experiencing. You know, life happens. We get beaten down, turned upside down and turned around. Life throws these things at us that we neither needed nor expected and we find ourselves lying in the gutter of life needing a hand up and some helping out. Stuff happens that is inexplicable, it's unfair and it's difficult to understand or even grasp. And this man that Jesus talks about in his story, the dying man by the side of the road, Jesus says he is beaten to the point of being half dead. And sometimes in our own journeys, we can feel like we're not even living our full life because of the way that life has dealt its cards to us. And Jesus says, this man on the side of the road is broken, bleeding out and dying. And a priest and a Levite, the leader and the teacher of the law, see him and walk straight past. But then, A Samaritan enters the story, and the Jewish people in the audience that Jesus was talking to taking a deep breath. (gasps) Not a Samaritan. And Jesus knows this because the Samaritans were a people that the Jewish people, the people people of God, disliked immensely. There was a huge racial prejudice towards the Samaritans. They were half-breeds, they were half-human, they weren't even worth talking about. I cannot believe that Jesus has just even said the word Samaritan. And it's not unlike how in a more ancient story, the people in Ruth's time saw the Moabites. There was a huge racial prejudice toward the Moabite people. And just like in the story of Ruth, Jesus brings the outsider into the story and makes them the hero, shows their character, puts it on show in order to reveal his own heart, his own character, his own love, his own hesed. Jesus says the Samaritan comes, gets down from his rightful place of his animal, gets into the gutter, starts to tend to the wounds of the broken and dying man, takes him to an inn and pays the full price to see that man healed and whole again. The hesed that Jesus reveals in the story of the Good Samaritan is supposed to reveal the hesed that Jesus himself shows. 
And as we go back to the story of Ruth and Boaz on the threshing floor, we see that same hesed on display. The hesed love that the Samaritan would get down from his rightful place, tend to the wounds of the broken, take him to a place to pay the price for him to be healed and whole again. That is love in action. And that's what we see in Ruth and Boaz as well. And in the same way that Jesus is telling the story of the Good Samaritan to reveal the character of himself, the story of Ruth shines a light on the character of God for us. Because even though in the whole book of Ruth, God doesn't actually directly speak or do anything, he is everywhere. He's in every verse. He's in every chapter. He's in every piece of the dialogue. God is everywhere. And we see it here on the threshing room floor. God has said is in action. You know, God has said turns mourning into hope. You know, Naomi is broken. She's hurting. She's grieving and she's bitter. And the hesed that Ruth shows her, her, her mourning has turned to hope. And she finds the family redeemer and tells Ruth to take off her clothes of mourning because there's hope here. We're not mourning anymore. There's hope. And God offers us that same hesed love. A God that when you are broken and hurting, hemorrhaging faith in the gutter of life, hurting and lost, full of sin, He is with you. He is coming towards you. And wherever you are in your journey, whether you are half dead in the gutter of life or you are just starting to see some hope in the situation, God is in the business of turning your hurt, your brokenness, your mourning into hope and redemption. God has said his loving kindness turns bitter to sweet, turns mourning to hope. God has said, takes empty and makes it full. You know, when we dive back into that moment on the threshing floor, we see Boaz acknowledge the kindness, the hesed that Ruth is showing in that moment. And he says, don't worry, I'll do it all. There's a couple of hurdles to jump over, but I I believe in your story. I believe in your character so much that if I'm available to be your redeemer, then I will be your redeemer. I will respond to your humility. I will respond to your cry for help. I will be your redeemer. And then in verse 16, It says this, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? In the Hebrew, it translates to, who are you, my daughter? Who are you? Are you you married? Are you engaged? Are you an outcast? Like, what happened? How did it go? And uh, And then she told her everything Boaz had done and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother in law empty handed. And this is one of the most incredible moments in the whole story of Ruth. Because right at the beginning of the story, we see a despondent and a desperate Naomi return to Bethlehem, a childless widow with just the mourning clothes she wore and the bitterness she wore even better. And she says, as she comes back to her people, and they say, hey, Naomi, how are you going? She says this in chapter one, verse 21. I went away full. 
but the Lord has brought me back empty. And then, from the threshing room floor, Boaz gives a whole heap of the crop to Ruth and takes it home and says, Naomi is not to be empty-handed. God takes, God uses his hesed to take the empty and make them full. The loving kindness of God takes the empty and fills them up. Where you feel like God has turned away from you, forgotten you, been too big for your situation, when life has taken it all, or even just something or someone, and there is a void, there is an emptiness in you, God fills you up by his hesed, by his loving kindness, by his fulfillment, by his redemption, by his salvation, by his encompassing you into his family. He fills you up with his loving kindness. God has said, his loving kindness fills the empty. And finally, God has said, takes the outsider and makes them family. Back in verse nine, where Ruth says, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are my guardian redeemer. This is an incredible moment where Ruth lays herself at the feet of Boaz and says, redeem me, take me. Take me under your care, under your kindness, under your protection, let me be your family. Interestingly, this word kindness that we're talking about, if you look at the etymology of the word kindness, in Middle English, the word kind and kin, K-I-N, have the same meaning. Kind and kin mean the exact same thing. They would be used in the same way. Kin meaning, as I'm sure you know, family, my kind, the people I belong to, my tribe, my clan, my family. And so when we say that God is kind, we're not just saying he is tender, gentle, and generous, although he is those things. We're also saying he's our kin, he's our family which is exactly what Jesus does for us in our redemption. You see, just like Boaz is the kinsman redeemer for Ruth, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He takes our brokenness, our sinfulness, our past, our present, everything that we are not, and by the work of the cross has redeemed us, wiped our past, wiped our sinfulness, wiped our brokenness and made us full. He secures an eternity for us in heaven with him by the work of the cross. He is our redeemer. There is no other redeemer. Boaz cannot redeem you. But Jesus has redeemed you. The work of the cross means that your brokenness, your sinfulness, the price is paid. Your healing, your wholeness is paid for by the work of the cross. And our eternity is assured through the redemption of Jesus. But the hesed of God doesn't stop there. The hesed of God doesn't just stop with ultimate salvation and a set eternity with him. The hesed of God invites us into his family to belong to him. Galatians 4 Uh, Verse four says this, but when the set time 
had fully come. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Jesus' redemption saves you from your past, your sinfulness, your brokenness, but the kindness of Hesed, the Hesed of God, invites us to be adopted into God's family, for God to call you his son, his daughter, for us to call him father, to be sisters and brothers in the same family to belong to God. God covers us with his garment, with his blanket, and says, you're mine. God's hesed takes the outsider and makes them family. And just like Ruth, who humbles herself before Boaz, you might be here this morning, and you need to be redeemed. There's a sinfulness, there's a brokenness, there's a lostness, in you, and you know that Jesus is the only one who can redeem you. And maybe, like Ruth, it's going to take some humility. It's going to take some courage to say, you know what? I think, I think they're onto something at Ormo. I think God is the way. I think Jesus is the answer. And maybe it's going to take some humility for you to say, I need you, God. This life that I'm trying to lead doesn't give me enough. It doesn't answer the questions that I have. And I can't do it on my own. I can't work my own way into salvation. And maybe it's going to take some humility for you to lay at the feet of Jesus and say, here I am. I need you. Would you redeem me? Be my redeemer, Lord. But it's on offer for you today. And when you make that decision, you come into the family. We cover you with our blanket and you belong to the family of God. God has said, takes the outsider and makes some family. Something that's really important when you discover things about God as a Christian, as the body of Christ, as you discover the character of God, uh, through the reading of scriptures and through your own personal experience of Jesus, as you discover things, as you understand things, that you're not just to know them. You're not just to take them on for yourself. You're not just to sort of tick a box and say, cool, I know that now. Next time I read Ruth, I'll know what the covering of the feet thing is. You actually have to embody them. Being a Christian, being a follower of Christ, Attempting to be more Christ-like means embodying the things that we see in the scriptures, the things that we learn and understand about God. And so let me ask you this morning, church, how are you showing the hesed to those who are around you? How are you showing the loving kindness of God, the hesed of Jesus to those around you? How are you bringing hope to the morning? How are you getting around those that are bitter and twisted and mourning and shining the light of Jesus into their situation, bringing hope to their bitterness? How are you filling the empty with the hesed 
of love of God? How are you taking people who are broken and dying on the side of the road of life, getting off your rightful place into the gutter with them and showing the kindness of love through your generosity, through tending to their wounds, through time and patience and relationship? How are you showing the hesed of God to those around you who are currently empty? Because God will fill them up. And how are you taking the outsider and inviting them in to the family of God? How are you showing the hesed of God and taking the outsider, the outcast, the one that people have prejudice against and inviting them in and saying, God has a place for you in this family? You see, right throughout the book of Ruth is this incredible insight into how God wants to partner with humanity to see his purposes fulfilled. God has done the saving. Jesus has done the redeeming on the cross. But he chooses you. He chooses Ruth. He chooses Boaz. He chooses me. He chooses us to bring the hesed of God to life on earth. How are you showing the said of love to those around you? Let me pray and the team's going to come up. As I pray, I want you to think about someone in your life who needs the said of God. And that person might be you. You might be sitting here this morning feeling the brokenness of a man who was attacked and robbed on the way to Jerusalem, of a woman who lost everything and has come back to her homeland bitter and twisted and mourning. I want to pray for you this morning that you would know the hesed of God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for the story of Ruth, of Boaz, of Naomi. God, I thank you that it's a story that invites us into the picture. It's a story that shines light on who you are. God, we acknowledge that you are big, that you are magnificent, that you are far-reaching, that you have authority over heaven and over earth, that God, you are majestic. God, we acknowledge that. But God, we also acknowledge this morning that you are personal. You are a God that took on flesh and skin and bone and came to earth to die on a cross, to save us all. And so God, I pray right now for anyone who's sitting here this morning who's broken, who's mourning, who's empty, who feels like an outsider. God, anyone who is asking questions, wondering where you are in all of this, I pray right now that they would know your hesed. They would know a touch of your kindness. And as they walk into their week, as they face the things that are a part of their reality, 
I pray that there would be moments where they are astonished by your kindness, by your personal involvement in their life and their situation. And God, I pray for all of us that we would know that we are purposed to show your said to those around us. And God, I pray that you would give us the courage, the loyalty, the compassion that Ruth has to approach people and give them your said, your loving kindness. We thank you, Lord, that we are saved that you are our kinsman redeemer and that we can walk freely knowing that we are loved, that we belong, that we are no longer an outsider and we can take the love and message of Jesus into the world around us. So bless us each in that I pray in the powerful name of Jesus. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.